Welcome to Politics Pulse, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. And today, something a little bit different. We are launching a new show called Great Ideas. It's going to be available as a podcast, also wherever you get your podcasts, also broadcast on WKXL. And I was speaking to our frequent guest here on Politics Pulse, Sarah Jones, the editor-in-chief of Politicus USA, a really fantastic website, site for news analysis, uh, all kinds of deep dives into issues and topics going on in the world. And we were talking about the Great Ideas Show and what it's all about and what motivated me to try to create it. And we got into such a good conversation that we said, you know what? we should really do this on the air because Sarah and I have decided to collaborate a little bit around this. We're going to be taking excerpts from the Great Ideas Show, putting them up on the Politicus USA website, uh, cross-posting a little bit, and just trying to get this content to as many ears and eyes as we can. So Sarah, welcome to Politics Pulse. Thank you so much, Matt. I'm so glad to be here and talk about this great idea if you don't mind me stealing your title. I, I love it. I, I, I'm into great ideas. And, you know, it, it, this really is, for all our listeners, this was really a case of we're having one of these conversations. And if, this, if, if any of you who are listening out there have any experience with recording, with doing interviews, sometimes you find it's when you're not recording that you get the best stuff when you're just having <laughs> right. a, a casual professional conversation with a colleague and you're throwing out all kinds of ideas and sidebars and stories. And, and, and that's what we got into. And we said, well, let's, let's continue this on the air. We'll never recreate it. It, it no, this, we won't. This may not be as good. It, this won't be as good, but we do have to give credit before uh, we get any further to both of our mothers who both liked our, my mom said she was very happy with my appearance on your show. And then you said to me, my mom was very happy with your appearance on my show. And so this got us talking about all kinds of things. And then from there, you started sharing with me about the great ideas. And I thought, wow, that is such a great fit for our website, especially in this great post-Trump era an yes. era when ideas can actually be discussed, when we have lower temperature, when we have room and space to have a real debate and hopefully come up with policies that actually help people. Absolutely. And by the way, that was totally genuine. My, my mother really enjoyed your previous appearance uh, on the show. I think uh, Paul Hodes and I had interviewed you. And uh, if I've learned one thing in life, it's uh, listen to your mother. Always, always a good source of uh, orientation. Exactly. My mom is, I kind of worship her and she's also my best friend. You know, that happens when I was a teenager, of course, quite a different story. But uh, now that I've managed to grow up a little bit, she, you know, she's just that person, the guiding light kind of. So she, she said to me, I really liked it. I felt that more of you came out on that show than you usually let out. And I thought that's, very interesting. I don't know why, because you can't, you don't know what's happening when you first do a show and you're meeting people. This is, it's an introduction. I think, I don't know if the audience knows that, but you don't always know the people that you're going to talk to. In fact, most of the time you don't. I've heard your show, right. but you haven't heard me, you know, we haven't had a dialogue. So um, it was a good opening. And then from there, all these things started flowing. So tell me, I'm going to toss this at you because you're always the one asking questions. Sure, so it's my turn, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, 
So tell me how you came up with this idea to do this show called The Great Ideas and what is this show about? So the idea sprung from a gap, what I see as a gap. There's an opening out there for content and it can be written, it can be audio for content that features serious discussions, discussions about ideas, discussions about how to make things better in this country and more positive content. I have grown increasingly concerned that we as a country, we all of us have been overtaken by attention-seeking algorithms in our social media, in our search engines, uh, in the ways we interact through the internet and also other forms of media in the in the TV, the cable, the, the radio that we select, that we self-select. I noticed, for example, that while in the fourth quarter of 2020, Fox News ratings were down and they lost the leadership on cable to CNN, their profitability went up 17% because they are catering to a certain audience segment that's self-selected. And they, they too are kind of curating their own content via an algorithm that feeds people a diet of not necessarily the most healthful content for our brains. And look, it's, it's, it's an old thing that it's the, the old saying in journalism is if it bleeds, it leads. That's nothing new, right? But, and I, I like brain candy as much as the next person, but a lot of our politics is being driven by it now, by the algorithms, by the bots. And it pushes us to this very superficial, very negative and very loud content space. And we know from studies that only about 7% of the American public on the left and about 7% on the right is really loud, really engaged, really angry. That leaves about the other 85% that is forgotten, somewhere in the middle, not nearly as mm -hmm. ideological, and maybe is, is ready for something that goes beyond the junk food. So your question was, what is the show about? On the show, I have set up a partnership with think tanks, policy institutions that feature experts, experts on every topic imaginable in American society and government and public life. And I interview a different subject matter expert on a different topic every week. And first, we get an explainer from a real expert on what, what's the issue really about? How does it really work? And that's driven out of a sense that I think people really do want to understand these things. They really want to be empowered by good fact-based information about what's going on in the world. And then in the second half of the show, we feature the experts' great ideas for how to make the topic better. And I hope it's the, it's, the, it's the hope that the whole show is predicated on that there is space out there for content that is positive, constructive, fact-based, I think entertaining uh, and certainly important and um, kind of fills in our diet. It's not all shouting partisanship, anger, vitriol, memes, owning people online and all the other <laughs> stuff. Right, right. On. Right. I think that's so important. One of the things that has instructed the way that I've approached journalism 
is that you should always know um, the other side, quote, of any argument, right? And you can, you should be able to discuss that and you should be able to listen to it. And, and there are often good ideas there, but even if you don't agree with that argument, you should know why you don't agree with it. And you should know why that might work in the actual legislative process, which is what our whole website is about. It's about policies that help people. It's not about the Democratic Party. Yes, we have a lot of Democratic readers, but it's not about that the party. Uh, it's about, as I tell people all the time, I don't care where an idea comes from if it helps people. That's the point of this government. It's what this government is supposed to be doing, but it hasn't been doing that for a long time and uh, for a variety of reasons, one of which is dark money, in my opinion. So that's why we don't take any, we don't have any kind of financial influence over our content. <clears throat> we don't take money from anyone, which allows that very concept of let's have a discussion about ideas with people who are bringing uh, a real hope and sense of how can we help the people in this country better? How can we be a better country? And that might even apply to things that you might think or people might think that liberals don't care about as much like national security, but that's like a big interest of mine, national security. And a lot of good ideas have come from Republicans on that. I don't think so much in the last couple of years, but I think that, you know, that's what I'm hoping that your show is going to do is bring people who actually have these good ideas. I mean, let's look at Obamacare was so much founded on, uh, in part, a Republican idea. Exactly. Exactly. No, I think that, and well, let me ask you a question. I mean, is that a gap? You're the editor-in-chief of a major news website, which gets a ton of traffic. And congratulations on that, by the way. It's a, it's a, it's a really good site. And it's also a successful site. Did you see a gap as you were, as you were crafting this, this content medium in creating this kind of constructive, fact-based uh, uh, reporting and analysis? That's a really great question. I, you know, I didn't start the website. Uh, Jason started the website and I'll just give you a little brief history of that. He was in the hospital and he decided I'm going to do what I've always wanted to do uh, because he's always been, he has a, a master's in, um, what is, I think it's public policy. He's going to kill me. I can't remember right now. I've got but, one of those too. It's, it's, um, if he does so, my condolences, it's not right, a useful degree. Not very, that's exactly what he was saying. It's not very useful. He doesn't get to use it. And he wanted to do a website that where people could understand what was going on in their government. So he started his website and I came across it one day and I was just really attracted to, it was very small back then. And I was working in film and TV and I, I would get so angry listening to the coverage of the news every day because I felt like the, the corporate media was so often repeating harmful Republican talking points about legislation, which I, has now been borne out. There was a study that actually proved how far the far right conservative media has impacted the way corporate media and mainstream media 
their takes on the news. And we've seen that over the last 10 years for, for sure. But so I was listening to the the news and like everyone else, and just, you know, I, (laughs) I was yelling at the TV. I just became so incensed. So I started writing and one day I saw a help wanted on Politicus USA. So I applied to be a writer and it all started from there. And then I decided this website is really great, but it's like, it's on this old, it was on Drupal. I don't know if you even know what that is, but the people who do will be laughing. So I said, I will fund the transfer of this to a much easier to use website. And, and so I did that. And then we started to just work more and more towards a partnership. And uh, eventually, I think around 2011, um, we formalized that. And uh, he was the editor in chief for a long time. We've only switched roles because we, we realized that I was the one doing a lot of the editor in chief business while he was doing a lot of the managing editor work. And that that kind of suited our personality better. So it just was a matter of, we're very, we're very small business, which for the amount of traffic we have is, is absolutely amazing. And we've been really, really lucky. I honestly don't know how we got this readership. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't recreate it. I don't know how it happened. It was like, we were there when they were ready to hear what we had to say. And a lot of what we were, we really came up during the Obama years. And so a lot of what we were doing then, there was so much misinformation about what he was doing from the right and the people who then called themselves the far left, but really don't really seem to be far left. Um, they were always uh, tossing out a lot of false information that became accepted as actually things that have happened. I remember one time, I'm only, I will just be quiet after this, but because uh, we've got to move on. But the thing that really got me was one day there was this narrative about, about Obama did X, Y, and Z. And there was this little clip taken from the C-SPAN video. And I thought, this is really weird. That just doesn't seem like something Obama would do. And so I went and watched the whole thing. And I was like, this, this never happened. It literally, the opposite happened. And that became something that really mattered to me was that I want to tell people the story of what's happening in the government in the context that it's really happening. And when the people on the left, when Democrats do something that isn't helpful, I'm going to talk about that too. It's just, I do want to say in the last four years, there hasn't been a lot of room for that uh, because Trump took up so much. I mean, the things he was doing were so appalling there wasn't really any purpose served to spend a lot of time criticizing what Democrats were doing. You know, I mean, they weren't, they didn't have a lot of power, but also the stuff they were doing was trying to help people for the most part. And so it just wasn't that necessity. Whereas, you know, I think anyone who cares about the planet and human, <laughs> humankind can see that Trump was uh, quite dangerous. So, you know, but I want to, you know, so I'm done with that. So I've told you all of those things now, but I, no, I wanted great, to great history. Oh, oh, well, thank you. I mean, it's, well, I never get to talk about this because it's uh, not something really people 
really ask that often, but um, I love what I do. Uh, I, I hated it under Trump. I wanted to quit my job every day. I absolutely hated it. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so excited about talking to you about what you're doing, because we're finally going to be in this great time period of what can we create? What can happen now? And while I can see that many of the Republicans who are elected are not interested in doing bipartisan legislation that can help people, I think there's a lot of Republicans and conservatives in think tanks and in uh, who write wonderful articles that I may not agree with their ideology, but I do respect their thought process. And I think they're bringing something really important to the discussion. So- yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, look, we, we can't kid ourselves. We are trying to recover as a country from being in an abusive relationship. We're trying yeah. to recover from Donald Trump. And yes, some portion of the country is still very wrapped in the Trump movement and and anger. And there's not a meaningful dialogue to be had necessarily right now. And and in fairness, there is certainly a portion of the country on the left that is very hard to reach in in the sense of maintaining a meaningful dialogue. But I think that there is a bigger portion, and it's not just what I think. I I think there's polling, (laughs) there there is polling, there's data that backs this up. There's a bigger portion of Republicans, Americans, who do want to be a constructive force in the American dialogue. And look, for me, I'm personally a Democrat, but for me, in creating this show, in order to be able to have ideas to offer to them, I can't simply say, well, here are the ideas of my party. I'm like Moses and I have tablets in my hand. Let me hand them down to you. This is what Democrats tend to do, right? Like Democrat is a term that means repeats facts smugly. We can't just have great ideas be great democratic ideas, right? It has to show at least the vision that I have and that I've worked with partners at these think tanks who run the ideological gamut from liberal, the Center for American Progress is one of them, to center left, uh, third way, which is a a center left think tank, to straight down the center, the Concord Coalition. Then there's a a center right one, the American Enterprise Institute, and a slightly further more conservative one, the Manhattan Institute. And the idea with all of them is we need to have a constructive set of ideas that we can offer. And I love the fact personally that we're doing a partnership with you and with Politicus USA because part of the sell, honestly, to institutions like the Manhattan Institute and the American Enterprise Institute is you're going to have readers and listeners here that you might not normally reach through your own communications. And that's part of what we need. We need to expose one another to some good ideas that we, that we have to offer in a low temperature kind of way. And we have to challenge ourselves. Um, the, you know, the same thing goes for the folks in my own political tribe. I wanna be challenged by new ideas and new perspectives and maybe be forced to rethink some of my own assumptions. And at the very least, at the very least, I think what we can offer one another as a country is the grace of listening. 
listening is persuasive. If there's one thing that, I, that I've learned in my career in public policy as a Capitol Hill staffer, working as a campaign manager in politics, it's that actually engaging in a, in a real way, listening is persuasive. At the very least, it creates the conditions where you can have a two-way street and you can be listened to in turn. And that's definitely, we're not going to get there as a country through this one show, but we can certainly try to make some small steps in the right direction. That's what I'm hoping to do. And it sounds like that's what you try to do with your website every day. How is your background in Congress helping to inform this show? And how pragmatic are these great ideas going to be? Because I think that's the, the thing. Everyone really wants to know, but can this happen? Can we get gun control? I mean, this is just tossing that out there. See, it's not a softball. That one is never going to be easy. So tell us about your background and the pragmatism of the great ideas. Well, like your uh, managing editor and, and partner uh, in, in business, uh, Jason, I also come out of a public policy degree background. And I went to work in Congress. I worked in Congress for the better part of a decade. I started right after 9-11. I started in uh, one of the four offices, one of the four house offices that actually had anthrax spores found in it. And uh, that, oh so that's, that's the vintage. Yeah, that was, that was a fun experience. We actually all lined up few days later to get Cipro. And one of my colleagues was getting married that day. So she showed up in her wedding dress, got her ah. dose of Cipro and then went off. So for those who think that the Capitol insurrection was totally unprecedented, it is mostly unprecedented, but the Congress has been attacked before. Um, you know, and then I, I, I worked in Congress for about a decade. I worked on political campaigns. I actually worked subsequently in the state Senate of New Hampshire as the policy director for the Democrats. And so I, I had kind of a very full, complete experience in policy and, and in politics. And I can say, look, we're all a little bit prone to looking back at the good old days and saying things used to be better. I do genuinely think things used to be better. I think if you were to interview uh, other former colleagues of mine, both Republicans and Democrats, they would agree. There are a lot of things that have changed for the worse. And it's not just what people tend to talk about, you know, members of Congress don't go out to dinner and socialize anymore. It's, it's part of it. Some of it is, is mechanical. Uh, we don't have things like earmarks. We don't manage to pass appropriations bills. I'm getting way down in the weeds, but there were ways that Congress used to incentivize getting things passed. They, they used to provide a little bit of um, uh, grease to the skids. To, to get people to work together. To some degree, the ability to do backroom deals was also uh, helpful in, in trying to get things done. But look, you asked, can we enact any of the great ideas that we're covering in this show or other positive constructive changes to things we do in America? And I am convinced that the answer is yes. We just did criminal justice reform in Congress involving Republicans and Democrats and signed by President Trump. We have come together to pass $4 trillion heading to upwards of 5 trillion in economic relief and pandemic fighting uh, mechanisms. And we've done it relatively quickly. The government 
has unleashed the power of the private sector to have the fastest development of vaccines in the history of humankind. We, we have made progress. And the most, I think, encouraging thing is, look, inside institutions, there are inside incentives, but people respond most, members of Congress respond most to outside incentives. You're never going to fix Congress unless you fix the larger politics around Congress in America. But social views, people's political views are changing. What Martin Luther King Jr. said is true in general of our politics. The arc of the political universe in America is very long, but it has generally bent toward justice and it is generally bent towards the kinds of things that progressives want to see. And if you don't believe me, just look at the lightning quick inversion of public attitudes on issues like marriage equality and access to marijuana and the minimum wage. There, there is momentum in America for change, for positive change, for constructive things that help people in their lives, the exact themes that you were talking about a moment ago. And as those opinions, as those views take hold, that is gonna change the outside incentives and that is gonna change therefore the inside incentives on our elected officials. And so, yes, I am hopeful that if we can come up with some really great ideas, which we can, they're, they're being developed every single day. Yeah, some of these things really can get done. What I love about the way that you are speaking about policy is exactly what drives our website. And that must be why we had such a good uh, rapport the first time we spoke, because in order to keep the public engaged in politics, they have to know that there is hope no matter how dark things get. And that was one of the dangers that we really faced in the lead up to this last election was that people were so dispirited and demoralized and terrified. And now they have this polling and studies that are showing that people were so scared, they weren't going to even try to vote. Every time they heard that Trump was an authoritarian, uh, they were less incentivized to vote. And that is such a terrifying problem. So we have to get people to be engaged and they can't be engaged unless they feel hopeful, unless they know that there is a point to calming down and listening to all these different ideas, that there's a point to um, taking off a little bit of our anger. And I can, I speak to myself, that's not a lecture to anyone else. I constantly have to tell myself, you know, stay open, that's a liberal belief, to stay open to other ideas and to not let my anger at X, Y, and Z behavior, like what just happened in the Senate with the acquittal of Trump, which I anticipated and wasn't really invested in, it still managed to um, make me lose a lot of respect. And that is a tough place to be as a country because then we lose a little hope. And so one of the things that you keep talking about in the way that this, this could happen goes to that idea that where we focus our energy is where we end up. Where your feet are pointed is where you're going to end up. So if we point our feet at division constantly, 
and finding all of the mistakes on the other side, we are not going to end up in a good place in this country. And that is what our enemies want, right? So you sound like a tennis player, right? That's the advice when serving. I play you know, tennis. You, you, yes, you point your feet tennis. in the direction yeah. you want you want it to go. That, right. Look, that's 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 absolutely right. And I, I think one of the important things in what you're saying is that what's really hard, what's especially hard, I think, for progressives, is it's so hard to ask patience of people, especially when people are suffering. Mm-hmm. And that we we heard this refrain over and over again in the protests around racial justice this past summer. It is very, very hard to ask people for patience. I think one of the hard things about policy, one of the hard things about government is that like MLK said, that arc is pretty long. You do frequently have to have a long-term view. Now, sometimes, and we've seen this in recent history, change happens darn fast. We saw this on marriage equality. It was not politically tenable for many politicians to favor marriage equality, In certainly in 2004, where it was a repudiated issue on individual referenda on the state level in, in state elections. And by eight years later, you had the president of the United States announcing his personal evolution on the issue. Sometimes, yes, change happens quickly, but most of the time, change does come slow, but it, it does come. And I, I mean, I would just, there, there are so many instances of this that I've experienced in my own career. It, it's sort of hard to choose one of them, but I, you know, early on when I started working in Congress, someone came to me and, and the congressman I was working for with an idea for an economic development commission. And his point was, look, the people in the very Northern stretch of New England have many of the same economic challenges that the people in Appalachia have that we've recognized for more than 40 years in this country. People are leaving the region, very low employment, very low educational attainment. It's an area where we've now seen since that time um, the explosion of uh, drug addiction. And we need an infusion of support, of economic support. And I worked for five years in Congress across two different members of Congress who I worked for to create the Northern Border Development Commission. It happened. It only happened because I and, and the members of Congress I worked for were able to assemble a bipartisan coalition, Republicans, Democrats, House members, senators, advocates from the state level. We all banded together and we said, we're going to get this done. And it has been a long, long commitment. It passed in 2008. But now, and it it originally had a million bucks in funding. Now it has tens of millions of funding and it is leading to job creation, economic investment in small communities that have been lost and forgotten throughout this ice belt region across New England. And there are people who have jobs today, who have healthcare today, who have schools today, who have cultural institutions today because of all that work 15 years ago. And so change like that, sometimes it's it's big and it's headline grabbing in the New York Times. Most of the time, it's small, it's incremental, 
It takes dedicated work over the course of years. I think if people can maintain that kind of a view, I, I hope this comes through, change is possible, it happens, and it's really exciting. It really mm -hmm. makes a difference in people's lives. And the other thing is that the, I think that the people protesting because we did see that with marriage equality too. It took a long time of people protesting, just like we have with uh, racial justice and women's rights and many other issues that haven't been addressed properly yet. It takes those loud voices a long time to, they're doing the advocating work, but the policy work is the slow business, the acceptance in the political world as you brought up the marriage equality thing was just boom, one day, all of a sudden, but really you can look back at the cultural changes that happened on television, for example, and other slow ways that people brought around the political process. So I always think it's important that we have these, we know that these are different places. The people who are uh, protesting something can say things to drive the political discourse in, the, in a better direction and then the people who are in the position of power to make decisions can respond to that. It almost sometimes gives them political cover if it's done properly, which is why so many good leaders of change movements talk about nonviolence, because you, you have to make sure your message is not distorted and diminished by negative press around it. Uh, so it's just I'm excited to see where we're going with racial equality right now it seems like president biden and vice president kamala harris are very uh committed to that process and to making that happen we have to see what's going on in in congress of course but i'm really hopeful about finally making some important changes i'm not naive to think that everything is suddenly going to be okay we see that with marriage equality that people are still trying to take that away so well, you go you, forward and you go backwards a little bit, right? Well, absolutely. And you raise a really important point about their, the role of people exerting pressure from one end of the ideological spectrum or the most activist end uh, of an issue. And I agree. There is definitely a constructive role for folks like that, much as there is a role for people in the middle and for people in positions of power to try and enact some changes. And that's especially true when it comes to some of our biggest, hairiest, most intractable problems. We're not going to get there by shouting over the other side, nor will the other side get anywhere by shouting back at us. Take, for example, one of the episodes that's coming up on Great Ideas focuses on the debt. Now, this is a really fraught political issue because Republicans say, hey, this is a real issue. Democrats say, wait a second, you weren't talking about this when Trump was in power. Now you're talking about it that Biden's in power. They're suspicious. I do an interview with Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute. Now, this is a guy, he's, he's a Republican. Um, he's worked for serious Republicans in the Senate. He wrote Mitt Romney's debt reduction plan in 2012. This is someone who really knows these issues from a factual standpoint and has constructed high level presidential level plans to try to deal with them. And it's just a really fascinating 
discussion, a, a fascinating episode, because what he lays out is, look, it, it's a little bit like the scene, you remember the movie Apollo, uh, Apollo 13, where you know, the, all the engineers are sitting around, they're trying to figure out what to do to get this damaged spacecraft back. And one of the engineers cuts in and says, hey, hey, guys, forget everything. We've got to shut everything off right now. This is what the numbers are telling me. I'm not making them up. What Brian Riedel ends up saying in this episode is much the same thing. It's like, look, whatever your ideological orientation is, over the next 30 years, we have a $70 trillion hole in our financing of Medicare. That, those are the numbers. They don't just go away. We're going to have to deal with them. And we're not going to deal with them by shouting at one another about our political motivations. At some point, there's going to be a painful adult conversation where we're all going to have to have some skin in the game. And this kind of pattern, this kind of need for dialogue and maturity that goes beyond the most explosive of our political spaces extends to existential issues like climate change. I, I have another episode coming up with Sam Ricketts of the Center for American Progress, obviously bringing a more uh, progressive orientation to, to that issue. But we all know that this is an issue that divides strongly on, on partisan lines. We are not going to make progress unless we're able to break down some of those barriers. And what he's able to lay out in the episode is that's actually happening. It's happening at the state level. There are innovative policies at the state level enacted in places that are purple, maybe even red, that are advancing the ball on climate. So it all goes back to saying that there is a role for people who are activists. There's also a role for people who are more in the center. And what it's ultimately going to take to answer your earlier question about can we really make progress on some of these deep existential issues, what it's really going to take is some listening, some dialogue, and a, a little bit of working together and not just shouting one another down. I think it's, it always comes back to intellectual honesty for me, because I've heard really great ideas from conservatives whose intellectual honesty has been maintained through different administrations. And they're not the loudest voices. They're not the ones that we hear the most, but they are voices that address important issues. And, you know, the, the other interesting thing is actually, I know plenty of Democrats who are interested in not having a huge deficit, right? Who are very fiscally responsible people. And I think that goes back to what you were saying that there is this there is this middle, and then I even look at Democrats in Congress and the, the pay-as-you-go act and other things that they've done where they were trying to be fiscally responsible. Some might even argue more than we saw from Republicans, right? But that's an intellectual idea that if everyone is being honest, everyone can rise to that the top of that instead of arguing and picking and choosing and cherry-picking ideas and changing your position as soon as someone else is in power. Well, and to that point, one of the things, look, I definitely want people who are listening to this show to go check out Politicus USA, not just for the great ideas content, but for all the other content that you have there. But of course, what we're going to be doing on the Politicus USA site is publishing excerpts from these interviews. And you can get a really good thumbnail version of some of the ideas that we're talking about on the show. And I urge people to do that. 
But some of what you don't get that you also get better through audio is that kind of contextual tone and feel. And I'd really urge people to both check out the Politicus excerpt, but also listen to the very first episode we're posting with Jim Capretta of the American Enterprise Institute. He's a healthcare expert. And what really struck me in doing that interview is he's, he's offering these, what he calls three compromise ideas, things we could do right now that Republicans and Democrats could agree on that would really help people with affordable healthcare. He, just his first idea, he lays out a plan that could close 20 million of the 30 million person gap. That's 30 million Americans who are uninsured. And a relatively simple change, he thinks, could close more than half that gap. And what really comes across in the audio that doesn't come across quite as much in written is this is someone who, again, he's on the more conservative side. He's presumably a Republican. He's worked for Republicans. He worked for George W. Bush in the Office of Management and Budget. But this is someone who genuinely cares. We often question one another's motivations. We question one another's basic political desires in the midst of these policy conversations. And I think one of the things that I hope will come through in this show and what I've already heard in talking to these experts is there are people across the ideological spectrum who truly deeply care. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily intuitive to all Democrats that yeah, Republicans, conservatives, they really want to cover the uninsured. They really want people to have access to affordable healthcare coverage so that they can live better, more productive, healthier, and happier lives. And I find that very encouraging. So the last four years have been a policy desert where Americans have been uh, have forgotten really the true function of the legislative process. I think that this show that you've put together is a great opportunity to refocus on the hope of what this great country can become and how we can be as Americans together again, rather than always divided and angry. Amen to that. I, you just succinctly summed up, boy, that, that, gosh, what a great tagline. I, uh, I, I'm going to have to excerpt that and, and attach it. I just it came up with it just now. It's just, this, this is what I, in a yeah. nutshell. Yeah, that's, 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 what, that's what it's all about. And Great. yeah, is that, is that a highfalutin uh, uh, thing to, to aspire to? Sure, absolutely. It's, yeah. it's a podcast. I don't expect to change the world, but uh, I, am really, I am really excited about it. I'm very excited about the collaboration with you. I'm glad we're going to bring some of this content, um, you know, because it's a, very, it, it's a very narrow world that these think tanks exist in and, you know, people in Washington pay attention to them. They don't their, their stuff doesn't make it out to a broader audience. I'm hoping that it will. I'm hoping people will experience it through the Politicus USA site uh, and through the podcast, uh, not only for the ideas, but also for just the tone and the dialogue and, and the conversation. And yes, I hope it represents a small step in the right direction to the kind of America we can be. Um, and I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and having this conversation. I've always enjoyed our talks. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Uh, that was Sarah Jones, Editor-in-Chief, Politicus USA. Check out the site uh, and all the great content, including the Great Ideas show. And please do subscribe to Great Ideas 
wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. Thanks so much.